Welcome to Real Booked with Lindsay and B, where we reflect on the parallels between bestsellers and blockbusters for laughs and social disruption. I'm B Jordan of BlueCouchLibrary.com, and I read the book. And I'm Lindsay Howie of MyRelationshipWin.com, and I watched the movie. Hi, this is B. In this episode, we're going to talk about cultural appropriation, native erasure, and white people claiming native heritage. I hope any indigenous listeners protect their mental health and skip out if you need to. For better perspective on these issues, we recommend Dan Dan the Transient at Dan Dan Transient on Twitter and the page Merciless Indian Savages on Facebook. Links will be provided in the transcript. Hey, B. Hi, Lindsay. How are you? I'm good. Fantastic. What did you read this week? I read Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls, published in 1961. That's amazing. I watched the 1974 adaptation of Where the Red Fern Grows by Norman Takar, and um, it was actually narrated by the author, which I thought was a really interesting way to, like get the cohesive story, right? Like, have the person that wrote it do your narrations. That's a really cool Hollywood trick. That is pretty cool. That makes sense to me. I think at the time, by the time that it was made into a movie, it was already being um, read in schools. Like, it's a required middle school reading still in a lot of places. So I'm sure he had um, a heavy hand in the production. I know he used to go around to schools and like give speeches to elementary and middle school students. That makes me curious about what this man talked about to children. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. There's somebody we'll who um, cobbled together a decent recording because it was, you know, yeah. the 70s, so it was hard to find a good one. For sure. I didn't make it all the way through the recording, but he's, you know, just a sweet guy. Yeah. Talking about following your dreams and stuff to kids. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, that kind of sums up the movie for me. Like, it was very much just this kid really wanted this thing, and by gosh, he was going to make it happen, regardless of anything else, really. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely could see that. Uh, Actually, that was a read that I gave. Uh, I just uh, posted about it uh, on Blue Couch Library. I did a post. I'm sure you read it. I did. I read through the whole entire thing. um, And that's actually why I wanted to have this conversation with you because um, I wanted to see kind of how much of the themes that you were talking to kind of were prevalent in the movie. So why don't you go ahead and let me know, like for you, overarching theme, like what stuck out to you the most and like why, what... Okay, so I'm going to do the one that I got as a kid and the one as an adult. Because I read it as a kid, uh, not as required reading, but just because I I loved it. I read it multiple times. I still have a distinct memory of where in the school library it was housed. Oh my goodness. Because I took it out many times. Because um, Billy was free in uh in just the most amazing way he had these two hound dogs and he was like running over mountains and through forests and facing mountain lions and 
raccoons, which I don't know why that's important to Billy at all. It wasn't important to me, but he was free and it was exciting. Um, and that wasn't an experience that I had as a very sheltered kid. And right. so I loved this book. I loved the dedication of the dogs. I love dogs. I have a hound dog. He's a beagle. He's not like Big Dan and Little Ann at all, but <laughs> but I sure do love him. Um, so yeah, freedom was what I remembered from this book. And then also, uh, I had a really super distinct memory of Billy walking it through town to actually go and pick up his dogs. Yeah. Um, that was the most clear memory I had of the book was Billy walking through town, um, and then this gang of towny kids picking on him and they call him names and they step on his feet because he doesn't wear shoes unless it's winter. And there's the whole vibe of you know, Billy is backwoods country hillbilly good people. And the town kids are like what the, uh, the rural communities think of people who live in cities who don't get it, aren't as connected to what? Nature, I don't know. Goodness, um, you know, you can listen to any country music station and pick up on the mentality that I'm describing. And that was uh, the theme that stuck out to me most in memory and the one that I picked up on most in rereading it. There was a whole lot of Billy being just salt of the earth, good old boy, poor misunderstood Billy. Like, man, God and Jesus are on Billy's side. Because he is he is such a good good old boy. It yeah. got a little a little bit much for me actually on my reread. That sounds like a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes me kind of happy that I've never read the book. <laughs> <laughs> um him being good and you having that perception really is striking to me because as I'm going through and I'm watching the movie, seeing this child Mm-hmm. being put in this position where because he wants this thing so badly and he's willing to work towards it, that makes him a man. Uh-huh. It just, it, it caused me to pause so many times as he was going through like his parts in the movie and conveying like his lines and <laughs> how like, first of all, his mother is completely dismissed, like, yes. in all of this. Like, she's just a filler character. And any time when there is concern about the fact that you're you're actually an 11-year-old kid and, like, she's trying to be an adult, she's just completely and utterly, like, not at all listened to in any way. No, actually, in the book, blatantly dismissed as the concerns of women folk. Right, which kind of leads me to my concern about good old boys and and this this person that is doing all of the quote unquote right things, and they are <laughs> uh, rightfully then reaping their rewards, but at the expense of silencing the majority of the people around them smacks of I mean I made the correlation that this mentality smacks of white supremacy thank you for the words (laughs) (laughs) it's like we get to this place where you think well how could 
how could this be? Like, hmm. <laughs> I'm struggling. I'm struggling with this concept because it's so entrenched in everything that we do. And as soon as you start to try to pick it apart as to why this is acceptable, it all kind of just unravels in my brain. Uh, yeah, it was it was tricky to write about for me for the same reason. It's very, very much the same thing. Um, so I feel like I'm going to be restating what I already said in what I wrote a bit, but that's all right. Um, I grew up in a small rural community, uh, and so reading this book, I it was easily identifiable for me, even though I didn't have the freedom of being from the early 1900s running in the mountains with dogs as a boy, I still identified with the small town mentality. Um, and so again, looking at it from an adult perspective with more perspectives, just having experienced more life, that mentality is still there. It's still familiar to me. Um, it's, it's hard to pick it apart really because I'm still so entrenched in it in various places in my life. My family is still, a lot of people still think that way. Mm. It was still a struggle, um, for my husband and I, when we moved closer to his workplace because we were moving to the city, which is ridiculous because it's like not even what happened <laughs> but it was it was a mental hurdle to get through because we still have even even people who don't identify as like we're better because we're from here still have this idea of safety uh in this this rural community um and also being sort of separate from the rest of the people um and whatever that means. But what the, what that translates to is anything that doesn't fit in your kind of homogenous, small worldview is progressively more other, depending on how far away from your experience it is. It makes It makes it really easy for you to feel persecuted, even if you're definitely privileged in so many ways. Well, it's interesting because the worldview that you're talking about to them, since it is the culmination of all your life experience, doesn't seem small. You never give yourself space to challenge it. You only see things from the checkboxes that you align with, and everything else is scary. I mean, that's not individuals' fault. We do that as our culture, where there's a lot of fear in our culture, Um and it definitely ties to the white supremacy component and even back to the patriarchy component because it's, it's really that and it's the intersection of that. It's the intersection of the patriarchy saying that anyone that is going to think with empathy or um, try to get you to think critically about your actions, that's just, that's just woman's nonsense. I don't Yeah. <laughs> Anybody who calls into question your choices, uh, it's easy to dismiss them because they're not you. Yes. Um, yeah. 
so it's like the the systemic components are definitely there and then we see how that reflects in the individual character and how he treats the people around him and mindlessly pursues this goal that I mean on the grand scheme of things and I don't want to belittle anyone's dreams or what they want for themselves but being able to earn enough money to purchase hound dogs so that you can continue to make money with the like I I don't understand the premise and that's probably because it's from the 60s and it just doesn't relate with a lot of my re- well own worldview. Published in the 60s, but he wrote it earlier in his life um, and he basically experienced it. It's semi-autobiographical. Right, so his um, childhood, so from 40s or 30s or whatever, and it's yeah. Arkansas. So, But that's another, another issue that I saw in the film is that it there are no characters of color. Mm, Yeah. I really thought that it was uh, appropriative to have a movie with a title that the only reference to the title is an Indian legend. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know the basis for this or what culture it actually comes from. If it's from a culture or if it's just white people nonsense, I don't know. What I do know is that that's how they sold the movie, Where the Red Fern Grows, is because of this sub-story that was told at the end. So let's talk about that. I definitely want to talk about that. That's not something I was able to... I didn't. I just didn't have space in what I was writing about to get into it, really. Um, also, I couldn't find a lot of information Um the first place that we as white people should go when we have questions about native perspective is native perspective. Native perspective. We should Agreed. definitely seek that out on our own and not just um, find someone and say, please give me the answers. So I started by Googling and I couldn't find native perspective on where the red fern grows. I don't know that it's not out there, but it's not readily accessible. I do know. And what I have found is that, um, there is, there are some stereotypes that it plays with pretty fast and loose, uh, and some, some problems Mm. that are known that it uses in the narrative. So let me go back a little bit. Um, Billy is, according to the book, his mother is descended from the Cherokee nation. Oh, okay. So, oh, Oh, is is definitely the response to that because uh, a problem that I have become aware of because I have sought out information and it's out there mm-hmm. is a, a lot of people claim to be to have Native American heritage, specifically Cherokee. Um, that's a myth that comes up often. Um, Cherokee people were um, romanticized as sort of uh, rebels. And so especially in the South, claiming Cherokee heritage is a, a you know romantic notion of I'm from, I'm descended from these rebellious people who basically who are not anymore, which is like another one of those bang your head against the wall things that's, um, no, I couldn't find specific uh, information about whether or not Rawls is, was uh, descended 
is actually a Cherokee person. He definitely didn't present that way or live his life that way. Uh, I have a hard time pointing my finger at him and saying, that's not okay for you to use because I don't know all of his story, but it sure looks like this isn't okay for you to use. Um, it sure looks that way to me. Uh, again, in the book, when we finally get to the end and the, the legend of the red fern, which is another thing that I couldn't, I couldn't find. That doesn't mean it's not out there, but I couldn't find information on this specific legend or where it comes from or who it comes from. Um, but when we get to the part where uh, his mom is telling him the legend, um, that she heard it from her grandmother, the implication being like that's the that's the familial link back to Cherokee, Cherokee people. Mm -hmm. um, also, there's a whole bit in the beginning talking about how they had the land that they had to farm because of the, quote, Cherokee blood in his mother's veins, which is another one of those things that is wildly... Uh, overused by white people to claim that they are not the appropriative colonizers of the land that they that, are appropriating that we are. and colonizing. Yeah. Um, appropriating from and colonizing. So it's another way to <coughs> place yourself as the victim in the story so that you don't have to claim the position of the colonizer. I agree with everything that you've said. This, I mean, this happens all the time. It has happened our whole entire history. People have been trying to soften the blows of the things that we've done as a people collectively um, by claiming some of it. And yeah, by saying I, I, I'm not responsible for these these bad things because I'm one of the people that these bad things happens to. Yes. And again, not knowing the whole story and being so very white, I have a really hard time pointing at this guy and being like, this is not appropriate, but it sure looks to me like the same thing that has been happening. Um, it's in conversation a lot about Elizabeth Warren claiming native yeah. heritage. Well, she's the same thing that it sounds like, I mean, because her family is farmers and that's part of growing up in Oklahoma or wherever she's actually from. I don't remember. It's not the point. Um, the point is that this has been happening ever since white people have come to this country and this will continue to happen until we address these things on a systemic level. So yes. Um, having said that, I'm going to put links elsewhere and include this in our, uh, in the beginning, but Dan Dan the Transient on Twitter at Dan Dan the Transient is brilliant, and I've learned lots of stuff. And on Facebook, the page Merciless Indian Savages is uh, wonderful. They share quality content consistently that is very informative. So these are perspectives that you should seek out the people who know what they're talking about and are directly impacted. Only seek them out if you are prepared to listen and yes. not center yourself in this conversation. Mm -hmm. There are so many white-centered opinions over on YouTube, <laughs> on the YouTube video, which is the whole movie of Where the Red Fern Grows, the 1974 edition. 
So if that is something that you are interested in consuming, you can do so free there. Um, but again, it's either going to make you break out in hives and kind of itch, <laughs> or it's going to really reinforce your worldview, depending probably on your gender and your race. But that's just my assumption. So yeah, that was uh, that was something that I had uh, completely missed reading it as you know a ten year old, right? Um, because we definitely still have all of these stereotypes of like the the mythic Cherokee people that aren't really a thing anymore. Which uh, <laughs> so completely missed out on all of that subtext. And it was just, uh, for me, the story about this little boy and freedom and then the absolute heartbreak, ugly crying at the end. Ugly crying at the end, for sure. I find it ironic that, like, as small children, small female children, we're like, freedom is being able to run outside and not (laughs) have to check in and just do what we want. Yes, preferably with some books and trees and dogs. Yep. (laughs) Exactly. I know. I I find that really kind of sad, actually, now that I'm really digging into it. That's all we really want, guys. (laughs) Let us climb trees (laughs) and have dogs. I wasn't interested in the hunting part. (laughs) No. Same. But I think that there is definitely some double standard here in that being free allows Billy to go and do whatever he wants, and that also is how he is just all the time. So yeah. it's not <laughs> it's not a special. Uh, I don't know. I have I feel bad for Billy's mom. I think is what I'm doing. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> When I was Billy's age, it was a whole thing to get permission to walk down the road a half mile to my friend's house. Billy took off to go on a 30-mile hike over mountain. Overnight. Overnight (laughs) to get to the nearest town, which he couldn't wait until the weekend when his grandpa was going to take him. He had to go right now, having told no one in his house, just disappearing and wake up and Billy's not there and then come home and it's... Totally and utterly, oh, we figured you did that. What? I I mean, there was definitely some, like, stern, solemn looks. Not in the movie. No? No. In the movie, it was very much like, yeah, Grandpa told us what was going on. I'm like, this is so not realistic. First of all, this kid just hoarded enough money for your family to be able to survive for, like, a whole year. (laughs) You would be pissed. You'd be whipping him. Come on. Like... You know that, like, white supremacy, authoritarianism, these two things go hand in hand because control mechanisms. So there's no way (laughs) that this little kid just disappears for that long and doesn't have, like, really bad things happen to him. It's like imagining one of our kids just disappearing and being like, I came back with this, I don't know, I don't know what even our kids would spend (laughs) that much money on. We bought the new Nintendo Switch. Like, where did you get the money? <laughs> and you didn't buy groceries yourself? No. 
we're good people. <laughs> we don't speak to our children that way. <laughs> but my point is that Billy's dad in the movie didn't speak to him that way in real life. <laughs> There's that depiction is not accurate. I don't know, like it is semi autobiographical. I wonder about that. I wonder if that was um Wilson Rawls remembering the very best of his family and encapsulating them in story form in that way, that to me would explain how his mother has so little depth. Oh yeah. She's not a person. (laughs) She's not a person. No, but that's a thing, right? We've already touched on that in our last podcast. Actually, mothers are not people. I mean, yes, that was, (laughs) yes, that's going to be a recurring theme as we go through these, though, because that is very much an archetype that our society does not want to empower for various reasons that we will get into in the future. But I think that it's interesting that this child, which we all agree that he is a child, like by the end, he's a preteen because he has to work for so long to actually be able to afford the dogs, and then he has them for however long before they move. But still, like, he's 11 to 13, like, at the most, to have the concept that, okay, by 13, you're an adult person. I know that that's how it used to be for everyone. It's not just this work that's that way. But it's utterly ridiculous, given the context of where we are right now. Um, Because it wasn't just Billy's mother that was dismissed. His sisters, who were younger than him but not that much younger, were also equally dismissed. It's it's women folk. Yes. In general. Well, and it's also the shift of power from father to son happens at a very early age. So this this coming-of-age tale, Mm -hmm. which... (laughs) Is It has no depth. I mean, let's be real. Like, his, again, dream is very narrow and fits his own worldview and doesn't cause him to grow or expand in any way. Mm-hmm. It totally reinforces all of the things that he's learned up until this point and basically is, oh, I deserve this, and so now I have this. Well, and this happened for me in a very uh, Christ-died-for-your-sins way. Uh, I don't know if there was any, okay. The, the Christian coding, I don't even know that it was coding. No, it wasn't coding. Um, (laughs) it wasn't, it was blatant. So, uh, when Billy decided that he was going to save up money and find, and to purchase dogs, he had stumbled across a campsite from some hunters and they had left a magazine behind or a newspaper or something. And in the back was an ad for hound dog puppies. Mm. And so at that moment, he got down on his knees and prayed in the woods and thanked God for the clue and dedicated himself to the cause. Ah. Um, so that carries through. He, When he gets his puppies, he takes them back there and has another prayer moment. And um, remember, when the puppies died, they died for him. Right? Right. Uh, that's a common theme, you know, in the, the savior theme is, is, is frequent in literature. So the way that that went down in the book, 
does not really parallel the movie in that um, Billy's grandfather was actually the person that facilitated the purchase of the dogs. So there wasn't a come to Jesus thing. There was reference to God a couple of times and having to work for what you want. Mm -hmm. Like that was the way that they framed it in the movie. It was if you have work ethic and you put in all of that work, then Mm -hmm. by golly, you're doing the right thing and what you want will be bestowed upon you. So, yeah, that, those lessons are taught to Billy through um, hunting stories with his dogs. I remember the very first hunt that they go on after he has them all trained. He, they tree a raccoon in, like, the biggest tree. Oh, my tree. God, I hated this scene. I hated it in the book, too. <laughs> they ha- so he had to cut down the tree to get the raccoon, and it, he, like, chopped the tree for, I don't know, three days or something absurd because he had made a promise to his dogs, and a man, capital letter down there, a man follows through on his promises no matter what. Uh, no matter if it doesn't make sense, no matter if there are other options, no matter if it's People are harmed in the process. Are harmed, or, yeah. It doesn't matter. You said that you would do the thing, so you have to do the thing to the letter and it's sort of like a get-out-of-jail-free card if you do something uh, that you shouldn't because, well, I had to follow through because I am a man, capital M. Um, but I want to come back to this happened for Billy. These dogs came into his life because God allowed it. He, they taught him valuable life lessons about being a good Christian man. And then they won this competition and got a whole bunch of money and then his parents wanted to move them to I don't know closer Tulsa Tulsa there we go Tulsa um his parents wanted to move them couldn't afford to his dogs won a whole bunch of money they were gonna move with the money and leave Billy with grandpa yeah so that he didn't have to leave his dogs because I guess there's no dogs in Oklahoma no the I mean the way that it was framed in the movie was it's too urban, it's too city, right? They're moving to the city, which goes yeah. back to yep. Maine. Yep. <laughs> All the good people. Anyways, yep. so the good dogs and the good boy has to stay in the good country. <laughs> right. But then, because the dogs, it's like the dogs came into his life, his parents wanted to move them, couldn't afford it. The dogs came, they earned the money, they couldn't take the dogs and then the dogs died, and everything happens for a reason. And that was that was the lesson. That was the moral at the end. Was basically everything happens for a reason, um, and just sort of trust that God has a plan for your life. Mm. Um, yeah, thank you for that face mm. uh, again. As mm. yeah, <laughs> as an atheist that grew up. Uh, being raised Christian and going to a Christian school, uh, that made sense at the time to me reading it 100%. when I was 10. Yep. It's like, yeah. Uh, now in my 30s, it's like, ooh, uh, really? <laughs> it's just everything happens for a reason, and that's just not true. Yeah. So I mean, everything happens, and we can't do anything about that, but the whole reason thing, that's just a, an excuse to make you believe certain things. But again, with the centering of this this mindset of not only 
not only is Billy, you know, good and right and righteous, everything happened not only for his, like for his benefit, specifically centering around him as the center of the universe. Yes. Like the lives of these animals, like they were born and died for him. Uh, That's a, that's a very, we should poke at that a little bit when we talk about white people centering themselves, like, man, that goes deep. We got to dig that up inside of ourselves and it's, it's not going to be comfy. No, it's super uncomfortable. And it also, if you are willing to look at it and poke it and dig some of it up, then it really makes you look at how you do value the people that you're connected to and what you look like as you're showing up for other people. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's the same but different when you see uh, moms talking or acting like their kids are their accessories or living vicariously through their children, right? Like, it's... You don't have agency all on your own. I only recognize your agency in relation to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Yeah, and I think that being taught this specific mentality can make you treat everybody who exists in that way. But we're all taught that specific mentality, whether it is actively like Billy or passively like Billy's sisters, we all receive that message. Mm -hmm. So it's recognizing that that has been internalized regardless. Like I can't say that it doesn't affect me because it's there. Definitely. And then owning that and figuring out what that means for you and how you go about dismantling that for yourself so that you can have richer experience and a wider worldview and just better depth in your own life. I couldn't have said it better. Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) So overall, then, now that you've had... A couple goes, right, through the book. You've had a little bit of time to kind of distance yourself since the last reading. What do you what do you think as far as what people should do with this book? Oh, man, I don't know. That's hard. Um, I still love it. I still absolutely love it. A lot of the reason that I love it is nostalgia. Mm. So... Those nostalgic components still make you, like, this is still something that you want people to consume and deconstruct for themselves? You know, I think that deconstructing it is important because it's, like, it's a fun story. It's not a long read. It will make you ugly cry at the end, and that's emotionally satisfying. Um, And also, there's a lot of things that if you're looking for them, uh, it, it, it puts some it pulls into focus some things that happen in in your regular life in the way that, that people behave in the way that people center themselves that I think is valuable. Um, yeah, I, I still, I think that it's valuable to pick apart your own internal stuff. There's also a lot of other ways to do that. I think finding perspectives outside of your own rather than ones that mirror your own are also essential. Absolutely. Um, if you're only seeking out entertainment or information that already reinforces what you think, then you're really not giving yourself the opportunity to learn anything new. Mm -hmm. 
with that being said, I don't expect anyone to learn anything new watching this movie. Yeah. What I do want to know is if anyone has watched the version that I'm talking about that came out in 1974, mm-hmm. and they've watched the version that came out in 2003, if they have anything to say about the differences between those two things. Oh, I'm curious about that as well. So if anyone out there that is listening or watching the replay has anything to say about that, please go ahead and shoot us over a comment or an email. We'd be more than happy to make a follow-up video yeah. about that specifically. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. You can join the conversation in our Facebook group. The page facebook.com forward slash realbooked will direct you there. If you want to support us and get more content, find us on Patreon. And you can always email us directly at realbooked at gmail.com. There will be links in the transcript. All music in this episode provided by purple-planet.com. Hope Hope we we hear hear from from you you soon. soon.